when we begin our time of message today, if you, if there's something going on in your life where you need a miracle, would you raise your hand? Let me pray for you. Father, I pray this morning for each person who's raising a hand and who's not and wants to. God, for the places of brokenness, for the places of desperation, for the places of sickness, for the places of grief, for the places of confusion, wherever there is a miracle needed, we pray to you, the God of miracles, and ask you to come and to meet in all of this mess and make something beautiful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good, I thought Dwayne was gonna play piano my whole sermon behind me. We all have our dreams, Dwayne, for these final two weeks. Um, all right, before we jump into the text, I have three things to say, and, and one is not important but funny to me. So, you know this picture that's going around of the final two weeks where I look very pensive with my hands like this? I just wanted you to know that's how big the fish was I caught in Montana when I was fishing, so. All right, I knew that wasn't gonna be very good. Um, uh, before we jump in, there are uh, some very dear and wonderful people in my life that are here. And my mom and stepdad are here. Thank you for being here today. And I, I can't take this moment to recognize my mom here and say thank you to all of you. Mom, this is the army who's praying for you. And specifically want to call out a few names. Uh, and so many of you are praying, but to Dr. Sung Cho, to Dr. Eddie Hu, to Daniel and Marianne Fong, and to Terry and Nancy Sheffield, who have been involved in a particularly intimate way. Uh, my family is so grateful for you, and thank you so much. And continue to pray for mi madre, okay? And then I was super surprised that my childhood best friend from Santa Barbara showed up today with his beautiful family, Ryan. So in most of the stories about high school, he's in them. And um, so here we go. Uh, it was uh, June of 1997. It was my first summer at Forest Home. I was hired at the middle school camp to be a maintenance man. And uh, that particular year, in 96, at the Olympics in Atlanta, apparently wherever the tennis tournaments were happening and the tennis matches, there were these Kelly Green bleachers that were beautiful and they were donated, some of them donated Forest Home. And it was the first summer where they redid the amphitheater, the, the Hopkins Amphitheater at, at Creekside, at Lost Creek Ranch. And, and it was the, the eve of the, or it was the day of the very first meeting in this new bleacher, and I was the summer staff person in charge of the facility. And I really wanted them to scream beautiful green that day. And so I thought wasn't part of what I had to do, but I thought, hey, real briefly, I'm gonna run out from dinner, and before the evening meeting starts, I'm gonna clean up these bleachers. And I went down to the shop and I grabbed a couple spray bottles of cleaner, started cleaning them, ran out of a cleaner, went back up to the shop, kind of in a rush, and, and grabbed one more bottle and, and sprayed, and I was so proud. They were shining, they were glistening, it almost looked like they were just perfect. And the students came in and, 
And the counselors came in and they sat down and then it was time to worship through music and everybody stood up and half of the amphitheater had green paint on the back of their backs and on their uh, rear ends. See, in, in my haste to get this thing clean, I had an intuition. I'm just going to go there and grab, I'm just going to grab some cleaner. But what I actually grabbed was paint thinner. Yeah, yeah. The, the very thing I thought was going to help make something more beautiful was actually made, actually helped add to somebody's destruction, to something's destruction. And it was a great laugh, and the camp had to pay out a lot of money and clothing and things like that. <laughs> but I think intuition works like that sometimes. If you listen to our Friday update, we talked about intuition, this idea that when we naturally think something or we don't use real reasoning, we just like instinctively do something. And oftentimes I think our intuition can be really, really right or really, really wrong. And in that moment, my intuition said, just grab a bottle and clean. And what ended up happening was what I thought was gonna make something beautiful actually added to some destruction. Now, here's where we're going with this today and for the next two weeks together. I think intuition is a beautiful thing that God gives us, but the reality is you and I live in a world that when we apply our own intuition into the spiritual life, oftentimes what happens, what can happen, is in our attempt to do something beautiful, in our attempt to do something good, in our attempt to be faithful based on what we think the situation ought to be or what we ought to do in this moment, that oftentimes our intuition can be horrific. The next two weeks, we're talking about counterintuitive transformation. And the more I read the Gospels, the more I read the life of Jesus, so often the way, his way of living, the very ways he views the world run counter, don't they? They run counter to the way that our world is set up. And he says things like the first will be last and the last will be first. And he esteems, as Perry taught so beautifully last week, the vulnerable and the poor. These are not the things that are esteemed in the world you and I live in. We live in a world that says first and fast and best and most. And when we allow that those characteristics or those qualities or those drives and we bring those things into the spiritual life, I think that runs counter to biblical living and it actually becomes quite dangerous. And I've prayed faithfully, I think, to ask, Lord, what is it you want me to say over the next and final couple of weeks? And I want to talk today about what genuine intimacy looks like because I believe that in the broken world we live in, where each one of us have stories of love and relationship that have gone poorly. Where each one of us have stories where love and relationship has gone bad. We all have a fragmented understanding of what honest and true intimacy is. And we have to come back to the scripture. We have to come back to Jesus to ask the question, what does genuine intimacy look like? Again, here's the deal. I believe there's a narrative that exists within Christianity. It's a narrative that exists within American Christianity, and frankly, it is a narrative that exists within me, and it is a narrative that exists within us as a congregation, and it goes something like this. 
that following Jesus should be kind of similar to investing into your 401k or your 403b for us nonprofit people. Meaning that the longer I am in relationship with Jesus, the longer that I am in church or the longer I read the Bible or the longer that I have faith in Jesus, then my life in this world should just kind of be on the steady increase up. That time plus being around all this somehow equates to up and to the right. So that, and here's how it plays out. My life should be void of complications. That my doubts in Jesus should decrease over time. That my ability to handle difficult circumstances or be in difficult spaces, my endurance should increase. That I I shouldn't really have dips and valleys. It should be on a steady, steady increase. And so when, when there's conflict, when and, and when there's doubt, we, something is wrong. So we got to find somebody or something to blame because Jesus enters our life and it should just be a steady increase up and to the right. I heard a pastor say it a couple weeks ago. This kind of thinking is we believe following Jesus is like a bull market powered by the lamb. And I just want to argue that um, if, if that kind of thinking, it might sound ridiculous in its extreme this morning, but I think it shows up all the time. It says that uh, when you follow Jesus, uh, man, if, if there's a bad moment, who, wh- who can we blame? What's the problem? And in our world, boy, we love blaming everybody and everything. Up and up. The more I follow Jesus, the more years, the more items add ones to their life, then a church or people should be like prophets. Blessing, abundance, more people, more money, less conflict. And I think that's very dangerous thinking. I think there's some truth within it. I actually think the promise of Jesus over the lifetime is more peace and contentment, and that can be translated to an up and the right, but it's peace and contentment in the midst of real life, in real living, with real consequences in this life. So this morning, I just want to look at one story, but we're going to hear it from two perspectives, two different gospels, the same story, with the intent of this. What can we learn about what real, genuine intimacy with Jesus looks like from this text? If you have the scriptures and you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We'll begin in Mark chapter 6 and move to Matthew 14. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went to a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on the land. He saw his disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because all, they all saw him and were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down, and they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. 
Matthew 14, starting 22. Now listen to the nuance. You're going to get the similar story, and then Matthew zooms in on a, on a moment with Peter that's going to be really important towards the end of our message. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd, the crowd he just fed. I asked you to do some reading, the feeding of the 5,000. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Now, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake, and when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And Peter got down off the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, Just three pieces of context, of background as we jump into this. Uh, A first one, kind of what I already queued up on Friday and a little bit now. What's happening immediately before this is one of the most profound miracles Jesus has given up to this point in his life. And it's kind of a famous miracle followed by a famous miracle. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment you're the disciples. You've just been where this crowd, and we do know it's way more than 5,000. People are out. Jesus is starting to be on the move. He has notoriety. People are really excited to be around him. And, and, and they take a couple of pieces of bread and a few fish, and it's multiplied. And they're watching this kind of, this miracle literally happen in front of them. And it's not even 24 hours later, and we find this episode. So Jesus is beginning to be on kind of a miracle run. And we find out that his miracles have a great purpose. We also find out from Mark that they did not fully understand what that miracle they just witnessed was about. So he's going to link the miracle of the Fiend of 5,000 to him walking on the water. Do you remember when he said they didn't understand what the loaves were about? So this is a total aside, kind of connected to the sermon, but did you know that you can actually experience the miracle of God and have no idea what it's about? You know, you can be so close to Jesus doing something miraculous in your life and you can read the situation wrong. That Jesus doesn't expect you and me to understand it all the time, in real time, for him to do what he's going to do. So we have the feeding of the 5,000, and we also know that Jesus, for some reason, in between these two miracles, he is pulling away to be by himself. He's pulling away to pray on a mountainside. Matthew tells him that he sends the disciples into the boat. Mark says they're in the boat, but he is up on the hillside alone. He is taking time away from the crowds. Now, listen. Remember, now in Luke's account, immediately following the Fiend of 5,000s, when he tells the disciples that he is the Son of God, they, he asks them, who do you say I am? Who are these crowds that are coming out think that I am? And they they think you're super, like, prophety and special. But none of the answers in Luke and none of the answers to this point were correct. No one experienced the miracle of the Phoenix 5000 and understood he was the Messiah. That's what they did not understand about the loaves. 
So can you imagine being fully human and being kind of a rock star where thousands of people are trying to come and watch you do you and, and talk to you and people are coming? I mean, arguably Jesus is on an adrenaline moment for his public campaign of Messiah and in the midst of him being on the rise and being very special and very around, he takes time to be alone. I think there's a lesson there for some of us. When Jesus pulls away to pray, to get away from the crowds, to even get away from his disciples, I want you to understand it's more than just a breather and it's not a 15-minute devotion. Jesus takes extended time with his Father in between his ministries. He has to pull away from those that he loves so that he might get perspective and get connection and genuine intimacy with his Father. We'll see just how long this time went in a moment. But the other part that just the way of context is important, that anytime you read a story in the Bible where it talks about, and we, we've sung it today, where it talks about the sea, where it talks about the ocean, where it talks about the waves. We go back to Genesis, and the sea was, this story plays on two levels. There's the reality of, of the actual sea and the storm, and then metaphorically, the sea also represents chaos. That's why in Revelation, if you follow Revelation as, as that story progresses, and a couple Easter go, Easter's ago, we talked about this, that when the sea is calmed, it's a, it's a sign, it's a symbol of God bringing order and peace to chaos. So read this story on two, two frames, the, the actual storm that people are going into, and then for you and for me, and the other meaning that Jesus is teaching is that the storms we will all go through, that Jesus enters that space with us. So I just want to look at three aspects of this narrative to give us a sense of what it looks like that Jesus wants to have genuine intimacy with us and what it looks like to have genuine intimacy with him. And the first one is this, in verse 48. I want you to see this. Jesus saw them straining. Mark chapter 6, verse 48. He saw the disciples straining at the oars. Now again, Jesus is on the hillside. We have a storm happening. And in some of your translations, it talks about it was the fourth movement of the night. It was the fourth hour of the night, because for the, the Jewish mind, the evening was broken up into three watches. It was six to 9 p.m., nine to midnight, midnight to three, and three to six. So this is how we know a couple things about what Jesus was doing on that mountain. It wasn't a 15-minute devotion. It was in the fourth hour, somewhere between three and six. Matthew tells us this right before dawn which means Jesus had extended, to make the point, extended time with his Father. We also know this, that while he's having extended time with his Father in prayer and connection, he seems to be praying with his eyes open. Because when we have communion with God, it's important for us to have context of the places that he's put us. It's really important for us when we are in connection with God to be aware of what's happening around us. It fuels our prayers, and for Jesus, it actually indicates when time for praying is done and time when action is to begin. 
Jesus is praying with his father. He's taking the time. It's somewhere around 3 to 6 a.m. And he sees his disciples straining at the oars. And he gets up. Time for prayer is done. And now it's time for action. He's praying with his eyes open. Prayer led Jesus to action. And prayer ought to lead us to action as well. Time alone for Jesus led to time helping other people. Jesus saw their struggle. Jesus saw their strain in the midst of a storm, a situation that was out of control for those that were living in it, and yet Jesus saw them. And how relieving for them in that boat, but at that second level, how hopeful I pray for someone today. Are you aware that Jesus sees you in the midst of your straining? If you raised your hand earlier that there's something going on in your life, it's not just my eyes that saw you, but some really powerful eyes that saw you. That Jesus sees you. He sees you in your struggle. He sees you in your circumstance. He sees what you are facing. He sees you. He doesn't just send you to be by yourself to figure it out. And and real intimacy with God is not about somehow muscling through your circumstance and getting good enough so that you can be in the presence of Jesus. It's about owning the honesty of the moment and letting Jesus see you. Intimacy is not about cleaning yourself up from strain and struggle, but real intimacy is about knowing that Jesus sees you in that space and in that time. And he not only sees them struggling, but he gets up and comes near them. Number two, Jesus reveals his divinity in the storm. This to me is so mind-blowing as I studied this. I've never seen some of these things before, but in verses 48 to 50, it says that he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Now listen, shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. He was about to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because all that saw him were terrified. Now immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. See, this is more than Jesus just doing another cool Jesus thing. Up until this point, in each account, feeding of the 5,000, Jesus has not fully revealed his divinity in Luke, after the feeding of the 5,000, when he says the Son of God is going to suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, be, be, be resurrected, it's the first time he declared to his disciples that he was the Son of God. And in this moment on the lake, Jesus does not just see the struggle of his disciples, but he takes this moment they are in, the storm they are in, the situation they are in, to say to them, I am God. Pass them by. This is soaking in Exodus. All of this is soaking in Exodus. If you recall, it's Exodus 33 where Moses and God are having a conversation and Moses really wants to get a glimpse of God and what does God say? Puts him in the cleft of a rock and says, my presence will pass you by. It's the exact same language here. Or in Exodus, in chapter 3, where uh, God is speaking to Moses through the burning bush, and, and he says, well, who's, who are you going to tell him sent me? And he goes, I am sent to you. And he says here, take courage, it is I, exact same language. 
For the Jewish mind, they are listening and watching Jesus about to pass them by, and it's an image of the divine. It's a declaration. It's a revelation that this person they're with is not just a prophet. He's not just a magician. He's really the Messiah. And in the midst of their storm, in the midst of their struggle, in the midst of their straining, they aren't just have this kind of coach Jesus around them, but the living God who comes to them and is going to pass them by with his presence. And they get terrified. And he said, well, let me tell you, it's me. I am who I am. Jesus is declaring and revealing to his disciples that in the midst of their straining, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of their difficulty, he's not only a God who sees them, but he's a God who comes near them and brings his godness to them. And he is, a, he is the same God who wants to bring his godness to you. And he's so beautifully amazing and human. He was about to pass them by, but when they saw him on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they were terrified. And in their terrifiedness, he came to them more intimately. I wonder if what another thing was on their mind that Isaiah 43, the prophecy about the Messiah, where the Messiah will be one who says and lives, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. This is a divine revealing. And the Lord says to you and to me, I not only see you in your strain and your struggle, but my very presence and my very person of being the living God is right with you. I come to you. I can bring my presence and my name to your situation, to your life. You are not alone. And what I love about this story is that Jesus brings his presence in the midst of the storm. It wasn't a moment where the disciples tested out with a great score on discipleship. It was in the midst of chaos, of confusion, of strain, where Jesus reveals himself. As I reflect on 22 wonderful years of serving at this congregation, I just reflect on so many storms. So many storms where Jesus showed up. So much revealing of his divinity in the midst of circumstances that seemed impossible. In courtrooms, in hospitals, in mortuaries, in living rooms, in coffee shops, and even a bar now and then. As you've been so kind to bring your straining and your struggle to me. Where I've had a first row seat to the chaos of your life. And not that we worked out a perfect solution in any of those meetings, but we did submit to a perfect God in those times. And I have seen over and over and over again the living God who sees horrific circumstances and brings his presence to his people and to those moments. And I have every reason to believe that whatever your future circumstances will be, individually, as a church, in my own life, that Jesus is still in the business of seeing his people in struggle and bringing his presence. A final observation has something to do with Peter, and I'm really grateful that Peter has made so much detail in the Bible. It should give us a lot of hope. 
We switch over to Matthew. What we see from Peter is what honest faith actually looks like. And it can show us what it looks like to truly follow Jesus. And let's just remind ourselves, Peter had just seen an incredible miracle hours before. Hours before, he, he was on a high with Jesus. And hours later, he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come walk. Come with you on the water. And how does Jesus respond? Come. And Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. And when they climbed in the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. See the revealing? He revealed his divinity, and their response knew it in that moment. But what I love about Peter is Peter is caught between glory and terror. Peter offers us a picture of life, a life of faith, and what real faith in Jesus looks like. One moment, great faith. The next moment, great doubt. Despite being a firsthand observer of miracles, Peter didn't always understand. He did not see, often drew the wrong conclusions. Hours later, after a miracle, Peter is essentially saying to Jesus, prove, prove it again. Prove to me again. And I don't know how long you followed Jesus, and as much as I think I've grown past Peter, aren't we all like Peter? Walking and then falling, having great faith, great moments of doubt. And what Peter shows is that Jesus is there with him in all of it. And that that is what genuine intimacy is. Tennyson has a great, great quote where he says, there lives more faith, believe me, in honest doubt than half the creeds. I think there's a difference between doubt as sport and honest doubt. I, I think this is an honest doubt moment for Peter. His life is on the line. They're in the storm, and he is having some honest doubt. But I want you to understand something beautiful about how this story is unfolded and given to us. Take note of the order. Intimacy with Jesus begins with Jesus. It's what Jesus sees. It's what Jesus brings. He sees, he reveals, and none of it seems to be dependent on Peter getting it right. Jesus isn't waiting for Peter to get the right answer before he saves him and brings him into the boat. Jesus isn't waiting for the disciples to pray the perfect prayer or remind themselves the right theology so that Jesus can do what Jesus does. Jesus, in his abundance, in his extravagant love, in his sacrificial love, reaches out to people in times of chaos with his presence, not because they get it, but because they need it. This is counterintuitive because this is frankly not how the world works for you and me. In fact, there's probably some really good training out there that says if you've been hurt by somebody, before you can trust them again, they need to prove themselves trustworthy. And while I think there's wisdom in that at some level, 
It's just really not how Jesus operates. I I think there is something bigger here for Peter. I think this this invitation to walk on the water is an invitation to a, a deeper intimacy, to an adventurous life with God. The intimacy, this invitation is for a deeper connection, a more trusting life, a more thrilling life. And Peter and his humanists can't keep the adventure going, but Jesus doesn't leave him hanging. He meets him in his question. He invites him into something more beautiful. And when he can't fully trust, Jesus still rescues and grabs him and brings him into the boat. I want you to contemplate, finally, how you believe the tone in Jesus' voice when he speaks to Peter. What's the tone you hear Jesus when he says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? What does Jesus' face look like in your mind when he's reaching out to Peter and pulling him on the boat? I believe this, and I can't prove it. But however you envision the tone of Jesus in this moment is most likely the tone you offer people in their moments. If you picture Jesus who's been praying with his father, who sees his disciples struggling, who is bringing his full divinity to them, and then somehow he has a shift and now he's upset and angry and impatient with them, then it's possible that when you're in relationship with someone who has a time of doubt, of struggle, of where they should know better but they're not, that you might have an agitated tone, a frustrated spirit. I really don't think that's the tone of Jesus in this. I think it's a a heartfelt invitation to something bigger. I think it's a, I had you. Little faith, come on, why'd you doubt? I got you. I think it's consistent with who Jesus says he is. But brothers and sisters, one of my great concerns for all of us is that the tone in Jesus' voice is a little rougher than it ought to be. That we have a Jesus who somehow moves from the mountain with with great love and excitement to be with his disciples and to bring, and, and they do one small thing, and now he's mad, and now he's frustrated. He does get frustrated and mad in the Gospels. It's just more with religious people than disciples. The tone in which you hear Jesus here is the tone in which you will find appropriate to have with others in their struggle, and it's the tone in which you might even find appropriate to be shared within a church. We are allowed to have hard days. We are allowed to have moments of great faith We're allowed to have moments of doubt. Jesus was with Peter in all of it. One of my favorite movies, and because we stream, I can't show the clip, and you'll judge me for this movie, but like 10 more days. Um, (laughs) So it's an older movie. It's a movie called Moulin Rouge. It's a crazy story, and it goes very fast, and I love the music, and I love the story because within the story, there's a story. Uh, The protagonist in the story is a a playwright. His name's Christian, played by Ewan McGregor. 
And, and Ewan McGregor is a, a hopeless romantic. He writes this play about love, and the, the main character is Satine, and, and, and as he's writing it, he's falling in love with this character. Here's the problem, though. Satine, played by Nicole Kidman, she's a courtesan. She's a prostitute. She's an actress. And somewhere in the midst of this movie, Christian is falling for Satine, and there's this moment where they're sharing a dance together, but Satine doesn't know he's the playwright. She thinks he's a duke. And so as they're dancing, she says to him while they're dancing that she loves him. Later to find out when she knew he wasn't the duke, Christian is now perplexed by this. So there's this wonderful scene in the movie where Christian finds her on a rooftop, and he says to her, hey, when... When you thought I was the Duke and we were having that moment, um, is it possible that you really do love me? And she begins to laugh. And she said, no, I, I'm a courtesan. I, I get paid to tell people what they want to hear. And, and, and he just keeps going. But, but maybe, and there's this love medley that keeps going. Christian says to her, all you need is love. She responds, you're being ridiculous. Christian says again, all you need is love. Satine said, there's no way, because you can't pay. Christian sings another song, a great song, in the name of love, one night in the name of love. And Satine says, you crazy fool, I won't give in to you. Now, here's why I love this scene. Because Satine is not the only one with a complicated relationship with love. All of us have complicated relationships with love. All of us have experienced love gone bad. All of us have bring our scars and our inadequacies and where love has gone poorly in our life. We come wounded to the concept of love. And yet there's the Christian, there's God, who, who cuts through all of that and just keeps singing and singing and singing and singing his love song. And in the scene, what happens is she keeps pushing him away, pushing him away until eventually she joins in the song with him and they sing together and it's the beginning of their relationship. And to me, that is what a life with God looks like. It's that all of us in our brokenness and in our inadequate ability to love as God loves, with all of our scars, with all of the things that that have proven that a pure love is really hard to grasp, that the living God keeps singing to us his love song. And he keeps singing, and we can keep pushing it away, but he's not gonna stop singing. And he keeps singing, and he keeps singing, and he keeps singing until we join in the song with him. Lake. On the 21st, you will celebrate 125 years of being a congregation. And my prayer for you is above all the wonderful things that God invites us into in this congregation and has over 125 years. Oh, I pray, Lake, that we would hear the love song of God singing to us that we would join in the song with him. 
and that the tone and the, the message and the people that come out of this congregation into this city and around this world would be people who are inviting people and see them in their pain, who bring the presence of God to them and whose tone is one of love. Father, help each one of us This way of being loved by you and being seen by you is so uncommon. It's so unintuitive for many of us. It's not the kind of love that is celebrated nor cultivated often in this world. God, I pray that we would be a people who recognize that in any moment of our lives, any storm, any strain, any season, that you see us. And you don't just see us. You come to us. You rescue us. And then you invite us into a beautiful way of living. God, for the moments where we accept that invitation and get to walk a few steps on the water, we say thank you for being with us. And for the many times where we don't take that invitation and are sinking in the water and yet you rescue us, Thank you. Thank you that your love for us and your intimacy with us is not dependent on us getting you right all the time, but it's on you seeking us all the time. I pray for my friends. I pray for myself. God, that you would give us ears to hear your love song and that you would give us voice to join you in what you're doing in this world with great excitement and hope and appreciation that it's you ultimately who are calling all peoples to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The old things have passed away Your love still stays the same your constant grace remains the cornerstone. Things that we thought were dead are breathing in life again. You cause your sun to shine on darkest night. that you've done we will pour out our love this will be our anthem song Jesus we love you oh how we love you you are the one our hearts are told would you stand together and sing
Lake Avenue Church, if, if you need someone to walk with you, to help you pour out what you need right now in this space, my left, your right, we want to walk with you. We want to help you pour out what you need to pour out, ask for a miracle, do what you need to do in front of Jesus in midst of community. Lake Avenue Church next week, 10 a.m. right here, an opportunity for us to praise the Lord for what Jeff Matisich and the Matisich family have given to this church. Would you come for that day? The following week, 10 a.m., Pastor Kerwin Manning will be here to help us celebrate and look backwards and look forwards to what Lake is going to be after 125 years. Would you come and celebrate with us that day? The following week, 9.30, did you catch that? The first Sunday of Advent, 9.30, the first Sunday of Advent, 9.30 here, the 28th, we will continue to wait on God together. Jeff, would you lead us in the benediction? As you go into this week, go in peace and live by faith. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now in this life everlasting. Amen. Have a great week.